Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode is a true filmmaking treat as the Oscar-nominated director Lee Isaac Chung spoke to Roger Michelle about his beautiful film, Minari. Isaac spoke to Roger about assembling a terrific global cast, nailing period detail, his strategic use of cameras and, of course, about farming the land. We hope you enjoy the episode. And welcome, Isaac. Thank you, Roger. It's so nice. great to be talking with you. And many congratulations on your really beautiful, beautiful film, which um, so I'm much. delighted to say won a Golden Globe. Was it yesterday or the day before? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm living on a cloud, so I, I don't know after that. I think it was a couple of days ago. Yeah, a couple of days ago. Uh, you're not. Are you now going into a kind of tunnel of PR and interviews and? The whirlwind that um, accompanies accompanies success like this. In a way, yeah, in, uh, definitely. There's a lot of press that's kicked up after this, and uh, that's been a surprise because I didn't imagine that happening. Uh, but this is a real treat being able to talk with you as a director. I mean that that makes this conversation very different for me. So we can well, that's, this that's, one. that's kind of you. Okay, I'm going to kick off by just talk, talking about some practical things. How long was your shoot? How many days? 25 days. Five, 25 days, uh, five weeks days. of prep. Yeah. Wow. Did you do five-day weeks or six-day weeks? We did five-day weeks. And then we okay. had a half day for the fire scene. So that was the one day. So I guess it was 25 and a half days. So that was the one moment we had with the bare bones crew. Talk about your crew. What sort of size was your crew? Um, I think all told, we had about 40 people on set. Um, but... You know, we, we tried to keep it smaller and uh, we didn't have a lot of camera gear, camera setups, things like that. I, I mean, like track and dolly, all, all those things. Yeah. There were things that we weren't privy to with this production. Okay, well, let me ask you about that because I was very interested to see how you rationed your camera moves, how you were very, very um, careful about the choices you made with moving the camera. I noticed that you moved the camera in the, in the forest a couple of times. Um, That's right. But you didn't move the camera that often in the, in the, um, in the camper van, in the trailer. Well, mm -hmm. What were your rules about moving the camera? How did you evolve them and how did you come to sort of respect them? I guess, uh, I guess there were intentional moments where we decided to put the camera on a steady cam uh, for a lot of the outdoor scenes. Was, uh, your, originally was, I, your, was your DP also a uh, steady cam operator? No, we had uh, another man come in and, and do that. I think he worked on Black Klansman. I'm forgetting his name now, but uh, he so you, was a But you had guy. to choose to bring him in for those days. You had to plan that. We did. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, originally we pictured doing a lot of tracking shots outside because we wanted to emulate like the old Hollywood Westerns on the frontier, uh, but we couldn't find a track and dolly where we were shooting. So we had to bring in a Steadicam guy. <laughs> Is that right? Um, you just couldn't find the equipment. Yeah, it was, it was the weirdest thing. Uh, there were a lot of productions moving into Oklahoma at that time because uh, something political happened in Atlanta, Georgia, where we were going to film. So all these productions came in and then suddenly the, the actual resources uh, started dropping. We couldn't get access to a lot of different gear and equipment. Um, so we had to be pretty minimal about everything and try to be intentional about when we use the movements. Um, even in the trailer home, we just thought, 
we're going to uh, try to rely a lot on stationary work. And then every now yeah. and then punctuate it with a movement if we feel like emotionally it calls for it. Um, so that, that was the idea we always had. Try to make everything essential, if that makes sense, because we just didn't have a lot of time and setups to spare. Well, it was very effective. Your choices were incredibly effective. I, when I watched oh, the film, you. I thought, I thought, um, of course, they must have built this trailer. They, they, surely they built it. <laughs> they, they kind of, they kind of shot in that. Basically, that's a train carriage, you know. We but did. You we shot it. in that thing. Uh, yeah. yeah, that was an actual used trailer home from the nineteen late nineteen seventies, and we kind of Frankensteined it out where we put brought in uh, different old part pieces of other trailers and just rigged that up. So the production designer was amazing at that, and then Lachlan, our DP. Um, I mean, I credit him for figuring out different ways to film inside of a tiny box, essentially, because he was always looking yeah. for other ways that we can present the scene and and family and. Um, he, he was so well focused on that, that that freed me up a lot with the actors. But there were no walls to pop. There were no secret camera, camera hideaways or. No, no. We, we tore, we tore a hole into one of the bathrooms so that we'd have more daylight coming in. That was. The okay. Yeah, was that the, when they were, when she was washing his hair? No, that was uh, a different no. Yeah, it was in the um, the scene where you see the older sister washing her hands with buckets in the bathtub, and when you see the boy also peeing in the jaw in the cup. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we added a window in there so we get us some daylight. Okay, I'm going to ask you a boring question, i.e., a question which I think everyone will ask you. Um, how do you how do you work with kids like that? Um, how do you well, get, how do you get kids to perform like that? I thought that was astonishing. I mean, obviously, particularly the boy, but the girl as well, and 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 the white kid at the at the religious meeting. Uh, that you know, Jacob uh, Wade was his name. Yeah, yeah. Um, honestly, I, I just felt like uh, I lucked out a lot with the actors that I got. They were they were really incredible. Um, of course, there's a whole bag of tricks that I felt like I had to employ, um, but it. It honestly felt like working with any actor where you're trying to figure out individually what does this actor need to excel, and uh, each each one of them had something different that really helped them, and and something that I tried to tune the production towards. And we were always prioritizing their performances, all the actors, because we knew that we really needed to to help them along. Um, but by the end, I felt like they were getting the hang of it, and they were really professional by the end. That little boy, there's there's a moment when we're filming in the hatchery and this was the last day of production. And he just asked me, like, can you tell me my frame? Like, is it, <laughs> and, you know, he's a seven year old kid. And uh, once I heard that, I was like, okay, this kid's That's ready hilarious. for this movie. That's hilarious. But there are moments where I can't, almost can't believe that they're acting. There's a moment in the back of the car when he just, he's yawning or he's, just woken up or in the back of the car going to when they go into the city to, right. yeah and i just thought this this is so truthful and so real and so so beautiful actually it was absolutely stunning yeah steven steven yun saw that exact moment it's great you pick up on that one he he was so jealous of that he said i wish i could just as an actor figure out ways that i can do that and be so real um because because that kid he just doesn't lie i mean he was so authentic all the time and, and we always tried to gear the production production towards trying to capture those real moments, if yeah. you will. Like I, I didn't yeah. always tell them what we were going to do or okay. what, um, 
his screen partner would do. We would often kind of leave that uh, in the dark for him so that he would simply react. So we, we tried to do some of that as well. Talk, talk a little bit about the other cast. So there's Stephen, who's, he's, he's an American actor, is that right? And, and then you had this, right. these two quite famous Korean actors come and join you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we, we were kind of all over the place with where our actors were coming from. We also had Will Patton, who, um, you know, very, very seasoned American actor. Um, Steven was also executive producer. So he, he kind of came on board very early on. And I feel like he's the glue in all of this. He's the one who went between all the actors and acting styles. Uh, the, the two Korean actresses, I met them through Friends of Friends. Um, I've, I'd already known of their work, of course, but um, that's kind of how they came on board. I was able to talk with them and share the script and um, they were just right for it from the very beginning. Um, and then it was the, the two children who were the challenge in terms of how right. to find them. Yeah. Because they were discoveries. We didn't have any, um, we, we had to look for kids who are bilingual Korean and English speakers and um, our casting director like threw out this wide net all over the country. Um, so Alan came to us from San Francisco, Noel was from Virginia, and we did all of our auditions through Skype, essentially, which probably is not that uncommon now uh, under the pandemic, but back then it felt like it was quite a, um, quite a risk. Why did you do that? Because you just couldn't possibly afford to, to fly all over the country to meet these kids, is that right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So it started just digitally, virtually. And then once we narrowed down to Alan and Noel, then we arranged for like a physical meeting just to just to have the final check. Um, so Alan came down and did an audition with Stephen in L.A. And then I flew out to Virginia and did an audition with uh, with Noel before we started. Okay, Tell us a bit about is it Yeo Jung? Yeo Jung Jung. Yeah. So, so she's very, very classic and famous in career she's made 60 or 70 movies is that right that's right um yeah I, I grew up always knowing of her work and she's she's just known for being a very cutting edge actress over there someone who is singular very individual um who stands apart uh and um i i got to know her through a friend and she had lived in the U.S. before. So she herself had immigrated to the U.S. and lived here for maybe a decade. So her English is very good. But more importantly, she, she had experienced that sort of life in the past, in the 70s and 80s. Um, and she's just incredible. Everything that we, we did with her, she's, I think the Wachowskis worked with her for Sense8, with Sense8. And they just nicknamed her the One Take Wonder because every time she's sitting down, she does one take and, and she's good. And she told me she does that because she's, she's lazy and she wants to go home quickly. But <laughs> to me, she's, she's a real sniper in some ways, she, uh, the, the way that she performs. She, she's just a genius. I think she had a, a talk with Helen Mirren, in fact, recently. Did she? Did uh, she? was in your film, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I, she I think was, they bonded. She was great with the kids, obviously. Yeah, she was she was really great with the kids. We, we we made sure to keep her separate from the kids up until the production so that when they're meeting her for the first time, we're really capturing that on yeah. camera. So we tried to keep them apart as much as possible until that moment. Let's talk a, a little bit about, um, you know, you're making a period film on a budget. A film, is it set in the 80s? It's set in the 80s, early 80s, yeah. Um, I, I, 
I watched the film knowing nothing about it, which is always the best way to watch a film. Mm-hmm. And so it's after about 20 minutes that somebody mentioned Regan. That's right. And I suddenly realized I was watching a period movie, which I liked. Oh, that's great. And, and then I noticed, um, obviously, as a kind of eagle-eyed, you know, director who's had the nightmare of making period films myself, I noticed uh-huh. where when they did that car journey into the city, you just let all the other traffic go very soft. That's right, yeah. And, and saved yourself like a million dollars per per shot by not having closing down roads and having period guards. And, and, and again, all that worked absolutely perfectly. Um, oh, I appreciate that. Can you, can you talk a bit more about um, what, it, what it meant to make a period movie and not a contemporary movie? Yeah, uh, I, I guess atmospherically, I just thought I, I love the way that period films feel like they're displaced from time to the point that you you kind of see them as a classic story that lives in a in a timeless space. That's kind of what I hope for this film that it feel like a fable. Um, and then on a personal level, that's when I moved to Arkansas to that farm in the in the early eighties. Um, so I wanted to capture what it was like in that specific moment of time, but um, I definitely wanted to keep it subtle and didn't want this to scream 1980s. And yeah, um, that, yeah. that's kind of why there's only one reference to it with the Reagan line that I, yeah. I wanted to at least have something that sets that context. Um, I thought you handled that production. It wasn't a kind of, it, nothing was flaunted. It wasn't a sort of, I mean, in, yeah. in, in many other films, there would have been endless needle drop of 80s radio music playing in the background or... Um, things uh, mentioned in newspapers and so forth but you you avoided that and that that was that was really rather rather marvelous i thought oh thank you so much yeah we we i kept telling them we want this to feel timeless in a way so we just want to set that context but not like draw attention to it um and yongok lee was our production designer and um she's from korea but she got the 1980s ozarks ozark mountain aesthetic so right um, she was going to all these flea markets and um, with the trailer, she was uh, grabbing parts from used trailers, ripping them out and putting them into this trailer home. Um, watching what she did with just like five weeks of prep was was quite tremendous. Talk a bit more, Isaac, about your story in relation to this story. You say you went to Arkansas as a kid. Is that right? Yeah. What are the, yeah. what are the other kind of intersections between your story and this story i mean for example this thing about sexing chicks seems to be almost uh, an impossible idea to make up yeah i can't (laughs) make that stuff up right but but where did that come from um so this whole project started with, with me writing down a lot of memories from that time um essentially when i was the age that my daughter is now that's kind of how this all started and I was writing um, all these memories. I ended up writing about 80, 80, 80 memories. And I started to see a story take shape because um, we did that journey ourselves. We started a farm in Arkansas. My, my dad didn't tell my mom that we were going to do this. He just popped us on a plot of land with the trailer home. And they were chicken sexers. Um, and um, there, there are a lot of parts of the plot that directly come from real life. We had a real fire on our property. Um, that burned down half the farm. And uh, my grandmother really came to watch my sister and I as we were growing up. 
Um, I, I'd say what's very fictionalized with this story are the characters and the dialogue and uh, a, a lot of the, the way that the story is ordered and, and fitting, uh, the way that it fits together. Um, I was trying to make it cohere as a, as a narrative, essentially. It is. It's, it's based on, it, it's inspired by what happened to you when you were, when you were a kid. In, it, it in some is, ways. Yeah. yeah, that was your starting point anyway. Yeah, that's right. Have your other films been autobiographical in, in that way? No, this is this is really the the one. I mean, I I was I was turning forty. Um, I wasn't sure if I'd be able to make another film because I I had done three films. They were they were more art house films, so they they kind of played in the art house film festival circuit. Um, and and that's not a real way to to support and raise a family. Uh, and you know, I'd become a father, and. Um, I, I took on a teaching job and I only had a few months before that job started. And I thought, well, if I don't write a script now, maybe I'll never have a chance to do this again. So I just thought I'm going to write the script and then start teaching. Um, so that's how this started. I just felt like I wanted to tell a story that is very personal, something that I would regret if I don't do. Um, and then once I started teaching, it was amazing that the script ended up getting picked up. Uh, CAA started to represent me on it. And then they were very instrumental in getting Steven on board, Plan B. And uh, I, I had to end my teaching year early to come and make the film. Uh, so it was, it was quite a, a change in my life, uh, all of that happening in 2019. Wonderful. Wonderful. Just before COVID, presumably. Just before COVID, yeah. Yeah. I can't even believe that we we eat that film out, and then we had the premiere at Sundance, so we actually had some theatrical play with it, or a, a theatrical sort of experience <clears throat> premiering the film. So, um, yeah, qu quite a, quite a crazy year before another crazy, even Very. crazier year started. Talk a bit about Plan B. How was how how was that? What was that experience like? Oh, they're Sounds great. Good. They're, yeah, yeah. Uh, what I really like about them is that um, they're. They are very supportive of filmmakers, of directors, and um, they're, they're just, they have great taste with uh, knowing other heads of departments who would be great for a project of, of really assembling a good team. And um, their notes were, were just spot on at every phase of the project. Um, so it was, it was great working with them. I, I got a glimpse of seeing why it is that I like so many of the films that they produce because um, they, they're really good as creative producers. Talk a bit. Of, let's talk a bit about post in that case. So, I'd like to talk a little bit about music. I was interested to see how, in the first five minutes of the film, there's a lot of music, quite mm -hmm. quite florid music, big orchestral yeah. music, and then there's no music for about twenty minutes. That's right. Yeah. Um, talk a bit about you how really you it, yeah. how you how you came to your musical conclusions and it and it, and it and it felt it nothing about it felt particularly korean which i thought was interesting if it, it felt yeah. more like sort of european music um and it also had this sort of strange was that a, like a honky-tonk piano in there or something or uh, a piano yeah it's kind of a, a piano with. that sounds like it's been in a bar for a while yeah that's yeah. right a piano with a cough yeah yeah, um, Emil, Emil Moseri is our composer um, and Plan B brought him on board. He had done a film with them in the past and 
one of the first conversations we had, we talked about how we didn't want Korean music in this, or I, I told him, I, I don't want this to feel like Korean cultural music. And then he said, I don't want this to feel like American, you know, twangy guitar sort of music. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. We, we started talking a lot about French impressionistic music, actually. We, we talked about Ravel and Satie, and um, that's where our conversation started. And Emile ended up uh, writing about five songs and giving them to me before I went on production. Um, and that was a tremendous gift. Um, I, I think he, he was even working before his deal was finalized. He decided just to work on these sketches and get them to me. And I'd never worked in that way where I had the music before directing. I don't know if you've ever done that before. No, I haven't. No, that sounds great. Very interesting. It, it was wonderful. Yeah. I, I would listen to some of the songs before directing some of the montages, for instance, and uh, I, I'd listen to it on the way to set. So I just knew the mood of the film somehow. And, and that was a tremendous help. How do you prepare for your days when you're, when you, did you have a car to drive you to set or did you drive yourself yeah. to set? Uh, I love that question, Roger. I haven't been asked that um, because, because I feel like this is something directors understand the, the, that sort of, how do you start the day? Yeah. I had a friend uh, who's, who's my assistant on the production, but he's really a creative partner in many ways. His name is Doug. And he came and, and he worked on this set with me um, just out of his friendship and his, his love. And he would drive me to set in our little Nissan Sentra and we'd always get a, a cup of coffee. And he would drive as I go through the notes of, of everything we're doing on the call sheet that day. And I'd just be bouncing ideas and, and kind of talking with him. So that, that sounding board and that friendship was really important for that process. And at, when I'd show up on set, um, I, I'd, I'd get my breakfast and oftentimes I'd just go and find Lachlan, our, our DP, and then we would yeah. get on the same page. Right. Um, and we, yeah, it, there was a, a ritual to it. I, I'm sure you, you know how, what that's like, the importance of a ritual in the morning, um, yeah, just to calm definitely. down and get yeah. a sense of the day. And you like, do you like getting there early? I, I do, yeah. Yeah, me I, too. I think it's important. Yeah. 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 And do you like uh, order or do you like chaos? Um, I, in general, I like order, but in general, I find that there's a lot of chaos, I guess. So. <laughs> I think some directors <laughs> thrive on chaos, feed off it. And some directors yeah. like, like me are repelled by chaos and yeah. are, always trying, are always trying to tame it and control it and be one yeah. step ahead of it, you know. Yeah, I, I would wish for that. For, for us, we were all cramped in that tiny trailer. It's about 14 feet wide. Yeah. And we were just stuffed in there and it would get up to the temperatures would get so, so hot. And, uh, you know, we'd walk outside and it feels cool outside, even though it's um, record breaking heat outside. So. God. Well, it didn't show. It didn't show. <laughs> yeah. Let's keep talking a little bit about post. So you, you did your, your first cut. Did the, did yeah. the film change a lot in the cutting room? Did you did, rewrite yeah. it much? Yeah. We, uh, my editor, Harry Yoon, was sending me scenes that he was editing as I was on production, and that helped. Every, every Friday, I would get scenes back, um, and that helped us figure out what we need to shoot again or reshoot and, um, you know, any insert shots we would need. Um, and one week after we were done, Harry actually prepared a, an editor's cut. And so we watched that together. It was about two hours and 49 minutes long. Mm -hmm. And that was the script in its entirety. 
Okay. And from there, we we trimmed it down about. Uh, how did you feel after seeing that? Minutes. How, how felt, did you? You know, with this film and this film alone, I felt good about it because I was so psychologically prepared to hate it that with this one, it, it was all right. And this was my first time working with an editor as well. So okay, wow, that was okay. different. Yeah, yeah. And then during the course of the of the next few weeks, did 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 you did you make discoveries or change things much, or was it did it was it pretty much as you'd envisaged it? I think the big changes that we had to make were um, in figuring out what's essential to the story. So th there were a lot of side characters, side stories that we ended up taking out of the film. And okay. that, that was a revelation to me uh, to, to realize that as we just have to focus on this particular story of the family and not let it go into the community and just let it be centered uh, on them. Is, uh, were, those, were those some of the characters who we meet very briefly in the finished film? Like for example, the bank yeah. manager only has one scene in the film. Exactly. Yeah, yeah there's more with him and there's yeah. More with the man who has the cross, we had a, a lot longer. Um, yeah, he's terrific. Moments that guy. With him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I really love working with him. Yeah, and then wonderful. the other thing we found was the the boy has to always center the um, perspective of the film. Like we have to cut to him at certain number of moments within the story, or else it becomes too top heavy in a way. It starts to feel too self serious and too. Um, too melodramatic and there was something about that purity of the boy's perspective that helps ground the film yeah uh, oh, emotionally yeah so that was yeah. a big discovery did you do any uh, preview tests or anything like that we did um i think we did three in total we did we did two that were more in line with what we wanted and then a third one we tried to just do something very uh, experimental where we cut out a lot of different things and we just wanted to see how audiences re would react to that. Um, and all, all three thing, all three screenings helped us a great deal. Um, one of the big things I learned from that, those screenings was that character of the man with the cross. Um, everyone thought he was going to eat this family alive and murder them <laughs> when, when they saw him. So we, we had to keep on fine tuning him to make sure that we show that we're, we're just showing the humanity of this guy, that he's not meant to stand in for any kind of archetype of the, the strange farmhand who's going to come and do something weird. And, <laughs> Texas um, Chainsaw and that's Massacre. Florida's. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I thought the same to begin with, but I was reassured <laughs> that he was such a fascinating and gentle. Uh, he was he for me. He was like an equivalent to the grandmother, full of superstitious remedies for everything. You know, that's exactly um, what we're, um, I, I was hoping yeah. for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. appreciate that. So, talk about the title. Uh, is it would the equivalent be something like uh, Watercress? Maybe very similar to Watercress. I yeah. think it's um, called Dropwort in. Britain and uh, yeah. in the U.S. and um, it's it's a plant that my grandmother did actually bring over, um, and that was one of the memories I had as I was writing was that she would plant this plant and that it would grow, and it ended up being the only thing that really took off on our farm that that took root and really grew and thrived. And um, you know the way she did it was so different from the way that my dad was pursuing farming. Uh, farming was just such hard work with lots of toil. But somehow what my grandmother planted, it just really flourished. 
And she planted it in this area where um, the soil was really muddy and dirty. And apparently that's what you do with it. You plant it in places where nothing else will grow. And it tends to help the soil become clean and the water clean. Um, so I felt there was something very poetic about that. And, and yeah. um, it spoke to my grandma, grandmother and her ethos. And, um, you know, it was very intentional that it's the boy and the dad who are in many ways uh, standing in for my perspective on things. Um, it's, it's the two of them that are going back to that plant at the end and, and harvesting. And he, he says it's growing well on its own, doesn't he? Yeah. It seems it's growing very well on its own, which seems to be a very interesting. Now you've explained it, I understand even more that this, this unforced weed slash crop yeah, I, I kind of wrote this film while I was feeling as though I was forcing everything in life, if that makes sense. Like everything I was doing was... You were the farmer, you mean? You were, you were exactly. digging these furrows. And, yeah. Yeah. And, and so I was kind of reflecting on, on actually the women in my life and um, my relationship with them and, and the sort of um, abundance of, of love and um, things that grow without effort um, in, in, in that context. Um, and that's something that um, was inspiring me to, to, to make the film and to think about that last shot as being something that I want for myself, if that makes sense. Is your father still alive? He is, yeah. He's still farming. He, he told me he's going to drive his tractor till he's... He wants to die on a tractor, is what he told me. <laughs> and what does he think of the film? Um, he, he's, he's very proud of it. He loves it. Uh, I, that, that was one thing that I was so scared about because, uh, with this film, obviously I, I portray that father as, as, um, a very complex character. And, um, I, I didn't want him to think that I'm criticizing him, my dad. Um, and I told him in many ways, this is a film about, about me and the way that I also see myself in you and how we're, we're the same person in, in many ways. And, um, uh, it, somehow the film I feel brought us a lot closer together um, once he saw it. Cause I've always had trouble talking to him. Like we, we have a communication language barrier, but um, something about this work really helped us uh, in a lot of ways. So he's a very big fan. I think he's going to see this Q and a, cause he's, he's watching everything. Right. Good. Good yeah. for him. So I imagine Isaac, you can feel your, your life, potentially changing exponentially at the moment as this film becomes more and more celebrated. I want, I'm wondering how you're feeling about that. And I'm wondering about what direction you want to move in next in your, in your work. Yeah. Um, it, it has been odd. You, you know, I thought I was going to be quitting filmmaking. I thought I was going to be a professor. Um, it, it's humbling, I guess. Like I, it's something that my family and I, my wife and I, we've been talking a lot about, like, it feels like we're involved in something much bigger than um, ourselves with this. And so we just want to be good stewards of it. And um, for me personally, something that I loved about this film, making this film was that we were constantly investing in human beings and, and wanting to tell a very human story. And I think that's what I want to keep doing, uh, stories that are very, very grounded in who we are as people and um, try to express certain hopes within that, and, but not to be too idealistic and, and to, to really respect people uh, where they are. So I, I don't know what that exactly means. I'm working on a couple of 
romance stories at the moment. And, and uh, in fact, one, one's a romantic comedy, so I need your, your advice on it. But um, I, yeah, that, that's kind of where I'm going. I, I just want to make films that I would be happy to see myself. And in the past, I used to be very serious about the work, but now I'm, I'm I just want to make things that bring joy and, and make me laugh. And uh, that, that's what I enjoyed about this film. Um, we had a lot of great funny moments and um, yeah, the, the comedy of it, I, I want to pursue some more of that as well. And are you, do you think you'll be kind of released by bigger budgets or do you think you'll be, you'll be kind of rather crabbed by them? I mean, it could go either way, couldn't it? I feel like it could go either way. And that's something that I'm trying to, navigate right now I, I definitely don't want to reach a point where the budget ends up building a, a beast of its own if that makes sense like it, yeah, it ends totally, up, yeah you know yeah so I'm wondering what that sweet spot is and I feel like I, I'll have to just go through it and experience it and figure that out um, but I've, I've been getting good advice from people and um, uh, right now I'm just trying to take things one step at a time uh, with the next ones I mean it's 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 a, still a, a modest budget, I feel, with the next uh, productions that I'll be doing. Um, and I just want to dip my toe into that and see how that is and uh, try to do my best with it. Is this something that you might start production on during COVID? Um, I guess it depends on how all this uh, goes with the vaccine, but yeah. um, hopefully this fall we'll be filming something. Um, and it's so hard to predict. I, I don't know, Roger, how you've been feeling about that yourself, like when to go back into it. I'm, I'm making a sort of archive-only documentary at the moment, rather intentionally, because um, even though there is quite a lot of filming going on here at the moment, and I'm sure there's lots going on in the US at the moment, I, I, the idea of filming under these conditions I find really off-putting and... Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, the idea of not being able to kind of properly talk to your crew, or you know, oh, you you sure. wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been able to sit, cram into that trailer, really, would you? That's under right, COVID, yeah. to to make your film. So I'm I'm probably sort of trying to wait until things become pretty much normal again before going back onto a film set with all its um, inevitable intimacies and um, proximities and that, that's the yeah. that's the fun of it really isn't it and um, I, I need that too I need that physical presence with people I, I, yeah. I can't imagine doing it through monitors and things like that, that yeah yeah okay so we're, we're coming to the end of our bit now but I'd like to go right back just for a moment to how you began Isaac if we can sure um, would you tell us a little bit about how you got into this business in the first place Sure. Um, it, it started in university. Uh, I was I was an ecology major and I was trying to go to medical school and uh, I, I was in my fourth year. And in order to graduate, I needed to take an, a humanities arts class. So I looked at this, the, the course catalog and I found this course for uh, video as art taught by this uh, wonderful filmmaker named Michael Romer. And I, I took that class and that ended up converting me. I, I just had no doubts after that class that I had discovered something that I could do the rest of my life and just lose, you know, all sense of time as, as, I, as I do it. Um, so it was really uh, that experience of making experimental videos and 
Um, I, I also started watching a lot of foreign films at that point. Um, I, I grew up in a very rural place in, Ar in Arkansas in the U.S. Um, so I was never exposed to world cinema and to different types of movies. Um, so it was really that experience. And then it took me a while to get into a film school because nobody was taking a biology guy, an ecology guy. And uh, I, I did film school. I, I worked all kinds of different jobs. I, I produced industrial films for a bit. Uh, I, I've taught filmmaking. Um, but on the side, I was making very independent films, uh, like my first film, Munir Angabo, which played uh, at Cannes. Uh, that was uh, something I shot in Rwanda. And then I made two other American films after that. And now Munati is my, my fourth feature fiction film. Yeah, I, I read about your film in Rwanda, which I'm afraid I haven't seen. So that sounds extraordinary. How, tell us a little bit about how you came to make your first film in Rwanda. Yeah, um, that was really a lot of good things in my life just happened because of my wife. Uh, she was volunteering in Rwanda as a therapist. So she's a, a mental health counselor. And uh, she invited me to come to Rwanda for a summer and figure out something to do while she trains counselors. Um, so I just asked around if anybody wants to learn how to make movies. And I ended up making a movie with these guys as a class project. And that, that ended up going on the festival circuit and um, was, was my first film essentially. Um, so it was something I fell into, not because I was really seeking out a film in Rwanda, but really because my wife just asked me to find something to do. Um, so yeah, I, I still feel very grateful for that, that project. It was very pure of a process. Okay, I'm gonna read you a question from one of our audience. Um, Hi, Isaac. The film is brilliant, and I hope you get every award for this. I am bilingual and often wrestle with the question of which language to shoot in. If it's not too controversial a topic, can you speak to why it was important to shoot in Korean? Do you think the film would have worked if it had been shot solely in English? Um, that's a great Chris question. Rajan. Thank you uh, for that question. I thought about maybe having an English version of the script to get financing. So that was one of the, the, the things that I was thinking about on the financing level. Um, but luckily plan B and A24 uh, were very much in support of the way that I wanted to do this, which is um, mostly in Korean. That's kind of the way that I grew up. Um, so I don't think it would have worked if I had stuck to English because uh, that would not capture some of the emotional isolation that these characters feel. Um, they, they are strictly living this life with their own language, speaking their own language in a community that doesn't share the same language. Um, so that, that changes the film's dynamics in, in many ways. Um, but I mean, that, that process is organic as well on set with the actors. We would always figure out when do we slip into Korean? When do we slip into English? And we just made sure to try to be honest with it. We, we weren't doing anything systematic or um, trying to make a point with it. We just wanted it to feel natural to our own experiences. Okay, and we've got time for one more question from the audience. This is from Kieran Bourne. The ending leaves you with this sense that only a miracle can save them. When you look back, is that how you feel your life is a miracle, a dream fulfillment? Um, 
I guess, I guess for me, I do feel as though perhaps the most redemptive things that have happened for me have been born out of failure or born out of destruction, things, things not going the way that I was striving or, or hoping. Um, somehow I, I come out the other side really feeling um, uh, reborn in, in, in a very positive sense. So that's, that was the feeling that I was hoping for with this film, that um, it's not about whether or not they actually succeed in the American dream. I feel like we've seen a lot of those stories, but it's more about um, them on a very emotional, spiritual level. How do they come to finally see each other and be together and cling on to each other, as we see in that last image of them uh, on the floor sleeping together? Um, so that, that was kind of what was driving me and it is born out of my own experiences in life. Um, but yeah, I appreciate, appreciate the question. Okay, Isaac, and now we're drawing to an end. You have many interviews, a long road of interviews ahead of you um, and a glorious future for you and your film, which has really been a delight to talk about. It's been really nice to meet you. Thank you very much. Roger, the, the pleasure has been mine. I really appreciate this. And uh, I'm looking forward to The Duke. And I, I love your Thank films. You. So this was a really much. wonderful conversation. Thanks, man. Talk soon. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.